This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, welcome to Redbox. I'm Matt Shorty, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. A busy old week this week, it has to be said. But we round off the week with, well, I don't know if you've heard, but uh, I toddled off to uh, a very smart office, it has to be said, uh, near the Ritz to see David Cameron. I don't know if you remember him. Well, the former Prime Minister's uh, memoirs, for the record, are out in paperback this week uh, with an updated forward where he covers a whole load of stuff, coronavirus, China, Brexit, and a bit, obviously, on his old mate Boris Johnson. Um, and you will know because you're a regular listener to the podcast. I interviewed him a year ago uh, when his book first came out. And although we talked a lot about Brexit, we also talked quite a lot about what it's actually like to be Prime Minister, you know, going for barbecues with the Queen. Uh, what's it like getting your red box and all of that? So if you want more of the sort of behind the scenes stuff in Downing Street, uh, then I have a scroll back through to uh, September last year for that interview with uh, David Cameron uh, back then. Uh, but I, I just think there is always something interesting about speaking to former Prime Ministers. There aren't many of them around. Uh, they've been there they've done that they've experienced extraordinary highs and lows uh, they've made snap decisions they make bad decisions they make sometimes decisions which will haunt them for the rest of their lives uh, but once you're out of office how do you actually fill your day apart from the thrill of speaking to me uh, for the red box podcast uh, but uh, anyway here we go then this is my interview with david cameron uh, actually there was an in- there was a big advert uh, in the times today for the interview uh, with the strap line when cameron meets chorley uh, which is all a bit when Harry met Sally for my liking. I'm not sure whether I'm Billy Crystal or Meg Ryan in that. I will leave you to decide. David Cameron, welcome to Times Radio. Well, great to be here, and congratulations for getting it up and running. Well, it seemed, well, I didn't do it personally, but it seems to be going all right. Uh, the last time we spoke, the last time we were in this room was almost exactly a year ago. Uh, so much has changed since then. Back then, the Prime Minister was being accused of uh, breaking the law in the name of Brexit, and you had a book out, and now we're back, and... Prime Minister has been accused of trying to break the law in the name of Brexit, and you've got a paperback out. Yeah, well, at least I'm consistent. It's the same book. Um, <laughs> but I've written a new preface um, to try and look at some of the issues like how we respond to pandemics, uh, the relationship with China, looking back at Brexit and other things to try and um, freshen it up. But um, yeah, the book is, is out and about. Now, um, we'll come to some of the listener questions uh, towards the end. But one of the things that came up a lot was people saying, basically, what do you do all day? Uh, that you're, you know, you weren't an elderly man when you left Downing Street. How yeah. do you fit? And particularly, you know, how's your lockdown been? How have you, how have you well, coped I with was all that? Very lucky. I was spent. Um, I was at our house in in Oxfordshire with my wife and children. My wife was 
battling hard to um, save and promote her fashion business. I was working less than that, and so I did... I cooked all the meals. I did my best to um, keep the place provisioned. Um, a bit of homeschooling, but that wasn't my strong point. Um, and uh, I worked for the Chipping Norton Food Bank, actually, um, one or two days a week, which was great to do something to help people who were really isolated and stuck at, stuck at home. But in terms of what I do, I'm president of Alzheimer's Research. I was, did a lot as Prime Minister to try and promote cures for dementia, and I'm continuing that in my, as it were, afterlife. I'm still president of National Citizen Service, the big volunteering charity, and I work with um, some businesses in the tech space. So I'm much less busy than I was as Prime Minister, accepted. Do you but miss it? Yes, there are, of course there are things that you, you miss. I mean, it's an amazing job, an extraordinary opportunity. And, you know, the opportunity you get to work with extraordinary talented civil servants and people in our military and intelligence services, all of that, you... You, you you miss um, some of the pressures and uh, the stresses uh, you you don't miss and you know obviously it's it's been odd being in lockdown not being able to do very much and and watching a government deal with you know a crisis that is far greater than anything um, that John Major or Tony Blair or Gordon Brown or I had to deal with and so I think all of us have a the sort of ex Prime Minister's Club as it were have a real sympathy with you know, the fact that it's unbelievably tough to get it right. And you're having to make so many decisions. Prime Ministers always have to make sort of three or four quite big decisions every day. But here, it's just decision after decision after decision. And you're not going to get all of them right. It is really, really difficult. So I think we have to bear that in mind. A few weeks ago, we had Julie Gillard and Helen Thorning-Schmidt on the show. And I asked them if they missed it and had it made them wish that they were back on the front line. Julia basically said, no, I'm quite happy being out of it. And Hella said she basically watched, watched it at home thinking, I wonder what's going on. It'd be good to be in those meetings. Have you had that sense? Do you wish that you were... Do you um, wish you in the thick of it? Would you, would you there, have handled there are it bits you, there, no, there are bits you, as I say, there are bits you miss and, and some of those big questions, trying to get some of these big questions right. And, you know, of course, uh, it's such a privilege to do that. But, but you know, what's happening... What's happened recently is just incredibly difficult and tough. Um, and look, I think it's easy to criticise with hindsight and say we could have done this faster or that faster. Um, I think the, the bigger picture is, I think if you ask John Major about science and politics, he'd say he learnt lessons from BSE. And I think Tony Blair would probably say the same about foot and mouth. And I would say the same about dealing with a Fukushima nuclear reactor or uh, dealing with Ebola. And that is, you know, the scientists working in our government are an amazing resource. And it's absolutely vital to ask them what they know and what the best information is. Um, but I think then trying to work out, well, what do we do is, of course, a question that involves listening to scientific advice. But it's a question that involves political decisions and judgments and taking steps that um, might be precautionary and you can't be certain they're right, but you have to, you know, occupy the, that space and make those decisions. And I think getting that right is something all prime ministers have to, have to learn. Um, as, when you were prime minister, you were obviously, bomb, like you were saying, big, making big decisions all the time. You're bombarded with threat warnings and often they, you know, everything turns out all right in the end. And this was the one that, that didn't. You set up the Threats, Hazards, Resilience and Contingencies Committee 
How much time when you were Prime Minister, given everything else that was going on, did you actually spend thinking about the possibility of a pandemic? Was it ever on your no, radar? No, it was on our it was on the radar. And I think Ebola, which obviously, you know, was principally affecting three countries in West Africa. Ebola really put it there because there was great worries about how far would it spread? Would it come to the UK? Should we stop people at airports? Should we take temperatures? Should we test? All those sorts of questions. And I set up the National Security Council because I could see that so many domestic and foreign and security issues actually, you know, come together as one. Uh, You know, what happens, as I put in the book, what happens on in, in Bangladesh can affect the streets of Bradford, as it were. But specifically on health pandemics, you know, we'd seen SARS and MERS and these other things and Ebola, and we thought we needed to address this as a national security risk. That's why we set up that committee, and we had this... We did make a pandemic a tier one risk, i.e. one of the most serious and most likely. Um, But I think it is fair to say that the pandemic planning, I think, focused too much on a flu pandemic rather than on a respiratory um, disease pandemic. And, And so, you know, the difficulty is being prepared, not just generally, but for the right thing. And I think, um, obviously, you know, better work could have been could have been done there. Uh, given your interest in the, you know setting up the National Security Council and everything that followed, you'd have attended those Cobra meetings earlier in the year, wouldn't you? Um, I attended to uh, with Cobra, which I found incredibly useful. I mean, uh, useful because in the room are all the people you need. You've got the police, the emergency services, the top civil servants, the intelligence organisations, the representatives of the uh, nations of the United Kingdom, etc. And as a way of understanding the situation and then driving the decisions necessary, it's it's brilliant. I didn't always attend the first COBRA meeting of every emergency, but I, I always thought you had to get to focus on it quite quickly. It's not because prime ministers are superhuman and only they can take decisions. I mean, lots of people can take decisions, but there is a there's a sort of bias in government against doing something, because, of course, you know, doing something involves risks. Taking a decision, doing something different involves risks. And you often find departments are quite defensive about what they're already doing. And I think the job of the Prime Minister in chairing COBRA is to get everyone together, find out the information, and then bang the table and ask, sometimes ask some quite obvious questions. And I sometimes found the answer to the obvious question was the one that elicited the most interesting response. I remember with the migration crisis, you know, do we have CCTV cameras in the Channel Tunnel? You know, do we have proper fences around the French end of the tunnel? Sort of bog-standard, obvious questions actually elicited. Sometimes the answer, uh, no, we haven't. And so I think you've got to get in there quite quickly and, and, and um, try and drive progress. But this is very hard. That because sounds like you're saying that um, Boris Johnson missing five COBRA meetings on the I, pandemic was a mistake. I, I don't know exactly what the circumstances were, okay. so I'm not passing judgment. I'm just saying what I try. I didn't, I'm just saying I didn't always attend the first yeah. one. But you, you might you, if you wanted to get one. stuff done, it normally needed, even though I had a brilliant foreign secretary in William Hague, a hugely competent chancellor in George Osborne, there's something about the prime minister turning up that helps to drive uh, decision making and get departments. I often found it was rows between, you know, there was a crisis on the other side of the world, a hurricane in the Philippines, and, you know, the aid department and the defence department just weren't working together in the way they should. One should stump up the money and the other one should send, send the ships. And it was only when you were there eyeballing the chief of the defence staff and say, why the hell isn't this happening, that 
sometimes these things would 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 take place um you backed jeremy hunt to be the tory leader do you think as a former health secretary you'd have handled the pandemic better i think i actually remained fairly neutral um in the uh uh in i've tried not to get involved i think ex-prime ministers have to try and limit their involvement in these things. I think Jeremy is hugely capable. Um, he was a brilliant health secretary when I was prime minister. Uh, I think he talks a lot of sense as, as um, chairman of the Health Select Committee now. Um, and uh, I hope his talent isn't lost to politics forever, if I can put it that way. You think he should be in the cabinet? I, uh, look, it's not for me. I'm not going to go through the, all, the, all no, 300 no, no, MPs. Well, that's, that's <laughs> right. no, my approach was um, I like to have... The, the, I didn't fear the tall poppies. I liked, I, I liked, I mean, Ken Clark, you know, and I didn't always agree. And often Ken would begin his explanation with why you're wrong by saying what well, his Ted used to say. And then as Margaret used to say, and by the time he got to me, you felt, okay, this guy's got a lot of experience. <laughs> but I, I liked having the big beasts, the Clarks, the, the Osbournes, the Hagues, um, George Young, um, Ian Duncan Smith, and the rest of it round, round the table. And I think everyone has to build their cabinet in their own way. And also we face specific circumstances post the sort of Brexit election where maybe that was more difficult. But um, I think you want to have the, the big players around the table. Um, just staying on the on coronavirus, obviously your time in office, there were deep cuts to, to local council budgets uh, and repeated failure. And this, I know this is a long-term political problem, but repeated failure to do anything about social care. Given what we've now seen in care homes across the country, do you think that the the death toll would have been less high if if you'd grasped that nettle, which, which successive prime ministers just haven't done it. Well, first of all, I think the responsible economic policy we had to put in place of getting the nation's finances under control, I think that was the right thing to do. And one of the reasons you have to do it is you've got to make sure that the country has headroom to cope with the next crisis. You know, if your debt-GDP ratio hits Italy-style levels then when the next problem hits, you can't act. And I think we took, we did things that meant, meant that we had some headroom to act when the next crisis comes along. On social care specifically, um, you know, we did fund social care properly. Uh, I think mistakes have been made in terms of health and social care and what happened in our care homes. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, some of those were not necessarily linked to resourcing, as it were. It was decision-making. Um, around who should be put in care homes and how they should be tested and all the uh, all the rest of it. But do I think we should have done more to try and address that issue of how you effectively pay for social care? Yes, um, we had a go at it with the cap on um, costs that you have to pay in your life. And the hope was that that would trigger um, uh, an insurance system where people could pay a small amount to restrict to, so they wouldn't even have to pay that much but it just didn't seem to work and so we didn't bring the cap in um, but obviously we, the country has to return to this and, and try and get it right Obviously there's been a lot of talk that coronavirus has changed everything, it's obviously changed a lot of what people had assumed you know, the, the, whether it's the, the jobs that we value suddenly actually valuing care workers people who collect our bins, people who make sure there's food on the shelves, that's changed. Also the fact that people are willing to give up their civil liberties in the short term for the, for the benefit of the nation, that sort of thing. What do you think has changed about society about you know, going forward? Does it mean the country's more open to tax rises? Does it mean that... Uh, in what I, way I do think, you think I society think it, has it, changed? Um, I, I think that the fact that people were so prepared to make 
short-term sacrifices for the greater benefit and for the long term, I think is an important lesson for politicians and others to learn. And I think perhaps we've underestimated the extent that people are willing to do that. And I think if you go back to the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was an assumption by some, including perhaps some scientists, that we couldn't do you know, things that have been done in Korea or in Wuhan to try and lock down and beat the virus because we weren't China or we weren't South Korea. And I think, you know, those are effectively political judgments. And I think everyone should look at what happened and how much everyone wanted to pull together and and do the right thing. And perhaps that has broader lessons. So that's, I think, broadly a a, a good thing. Uh, Boris Johnson has been very keen to point out that austerity is not coming back. do you think that is a mistake, him ruling it out in that way, or is it just inevitable that there will have to be spending cuts or, or pretty major well, tax rises? The first thing I'd say is, look, we're, economically, we are going, we're responding to something now, which is not the aftermath of a financial crash or the result of too much debt borrowing and poor practice in banks or what have you. We're responding to the fact that we had to close down a part of our economy. We had to, de- you know, we deliberately reduced our GDP as an act of policy and so therefore it wouldn't be the right thing to follow that uh, in anything other than quite a sort of generous help as we reopen Um, as we as the economy starts moving again you know we're going to have sadly a smaller economy of lower tax revenues huge pressure on spending we're still going to have to make difficult decisions Um, and as we hopefully reach the sunlit uplands of, of growth again we will have to think about how do we start fixing the roof again while the sun is shining. But we're obviously not, not there yet. Um, let's, uh, I suppose we ought to talk about Brexit. Um, we must, because it's back in the news again. Um, you write in your new forward about how Brexit has made the Tory party seem less liberal. And you also lament the loss of socially progressive, liberal-minded MPs last year. Obviously, was it two dozen got uh, the whip with John. Uh, do you think if you'd been an, still been an MP last year, you'd have been among those losing the whip? Well, the point I was trying to make is that Brexit doesn't necessarily mean that the Conservative Party is less liberal or less progressive or less open to ideas like equal marriage, which I'm very proud to have, to have introduced. But the point I'm making is it's, it's seen by some as a signal that it's going that way. And so I think the Conservative leadership have to work hard to say, no, 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 we are in favour of Brexit and we are doing that for all the reasons we set out. But that doesn't mean we're suddenly... Uh, you know, we, we're not working harder for an inclusive uh, Britain, for good, um, uh, harmonious community and race relations. I think you just need to work harder on that. It doesn't necessarily that the, the two follow. But you, you sound like you're worried that it, that's not the impression that people have at the moment. Uh, I, th- I don't think it's what the government thinks. I'm, I, I just think that there are some people who, who see Brexit as a signal of a less... Um, socially inclusive and progressive Conservative Party, and I think the government has to work hard to correct that. But I think they'd like to do that. I think that's who Boris is, very much a one-nation Conservative. He was very supportive of, for instance, equal marriage. Um, I know that he cares passionately about trying to build a country where everyone feels at home. This this issue of social cohesion, how you build a country where everyone feels they can get on, and everything, I think that's you know, going to become the biggest issue in politics and we have to start thinking not just what's my health policy my housing policy my economic policy oh and there's this thing called cohesion we almost need to flip it on its head and say we want to build a country where everyone feels at home what follows from that and i I think boris would buy into that 
idea. Uh, if you'd been in the House of Commons this week, would you have voted for a bill which a cabinet minister says breaks international law? Uh, I think what I would have done is seek uh, assurances that um, this couldn't possibly happen until it really was the last resort, that you have some sort of totally separate vote on it. As I put it the other day, um, passing a law and breaking an international treaty obligation is, is the very last thing you should do, the last resort. Uh, after you've tried everything else and, and nothing else works. That sounds but, like you are happy with the idea of breaking international law. I, I'm not happy about it, but look, but when I, this when government's I, in a negotiation. I mean, I, my, I, I mean, I you take just a, don't think it's real, that's the thing. Well, I, I've come at it from a different point of view to um, uh, John Major and Tony Blair, for instance, because I see it as, you know, we're in this very important negotiation. The EU are, you know, quite understandably negotiating very hard and saying all sorts of things and putting all positions about how tough it'll be if there's no deal. And the government's trying to counter that. And one will be able to argue at the end of all this, was it a good tactic or was it a bad tactic? Uh, but that's how I see it. And so I, I was restrained in what I said. And actually, I think we can have a deal. I mean, if it's fishing and state support to industry that's left, um, you know, those are... I would think, solvable issues. But as a signal for Britain to say that we would even raise the idea of... A year ago, when I interviewed you, the argument then was about prorogation, you said, if you pair back a Conservative their last dying belief, it really should be that government under the rule of law is the absolute foundation of our constitution, our success as a country, our place in the world. What signal is it sending to I, I, as other I say, countries? I don't like even the if, signal. Even if it uh, is no. only a tactic, well, it's still well, a message that it sends. Absolutely, and that's why it ought to be a last resort and not something you put on the table um, uh, uh, early on. Um, that said, I'm trying to be consistent, as it were, with my own record. I mean, I found myself as Prime Minister being told by my Attorney General uh, that because of the decisions of the European Court of Human Rights, I had to give prisoners the vote. And I took the view that whether or not prisoners had the vote was a matter for the UK Parliament, not for um, a, a court, even though we'd signed up to the jurisdiction of that court. And so I, I perhaps see these things in slightly different light to my former Prime Minister colleagues, but it's, it's, the signal is bad. I, ha I said I have misgivings about it. It's something you should do if all else has failed and not put it on the table early doors. So I, I, I think that's a sort of consistent and clear position. Uh, when we spoke last year, you talked about the conversation and advice you'd given Theresa May about how to try and navigate the way through Brexit. Have you been in touch with Boris? We talk from time to time and text each other from time to time, but... Um, uh, look, I think the negotiation... Have you spoken to him about this? this I haven't issue? spoken to him about this issue. I also think, to be fair to him, and I always try to be fair, the negotiation he's in, compared with the negotiation I was in, I was in are rather different. I was trying to negotiate to stay in an organisation on a changed basis for which you, you know, absolutely essential to win the goodwill of the people that were your colleagues round the table. This is a negotiation to leave an organisation that we've been in for 40 years and a negotiation that really no other country, major country, has completed. And it is incredibly difficult. And you have to play, um, perhaps, by uh, a slightly different um, set of rules. So, as I say, look, let's do an interview when we've either got a deal or haven't got a deal, and we can then discuss whether the tactics deal. deployed we'll we will, to get there we will, were good We will ones. agree that deal now, uh, and we'll come back and do, we'll come back and do theoretically, that Theoretically, I was saying. But you can see the point I'm trying to make. Um, uh, let's talk about, because a lot of the questions we, which we got in from listeners were along the lines of, why did you clear off 
uh, when you lost the referendum in 2016. And we spoke at length about that before. Yes, and your yes. argument is it's very difficult for you to stay on. But that is clearly... Well, I, know, I mean, it wasn't, just, it wasn't that it was difficult for me. I didn't think it was right for the country. I think the country had... I'd, I'd thrown everything into the referendum campaign on the Remain side. I didn't do it as a sort of either or. I put everything on the line and said everything and did everything I could. And having lost, I thought the country needed a new prime minister. Um, it wasn't about me. It was about what was... I mean, it was incredibly... Pay- I hated having to resign. I didn't want to in, in so many ways, but I just don't think it would have worked. And um, I, I, I haven't changed my mind about that. So, the, so I mean, so other people said that you, you know, you did the honourable thing and you, something went wrong on your watch and you resigned. So what, what do you make of the fact that the idea of resigning when something goes wrong on your watch doesn't seem to happen anymore, whether it's uh, Gavin Williamson on the exams or uh, you'd have sacked Dominic Cummings, wouldn't you, for going to Barnard Castle? <laughs> well, I did sack him twice, but he kept coming back. <laughs> um, uh, we didn't necessarily hit it off. But he's a man of great... I mean, he's very clever. He's, he's a very able. Perhaps if he's, um, you know, uh, your right-hand man and you're the Prime Minister, that's, that's the best place for him. It just... He wasn't my right-hand man. He was someone else's, and it was no end of trouble. But, um, look, I think... Uh, every case is different. In fact, when you're Prime Minister, you sort of think, surely there's a handbook for when people have to resign and when they don't have to resign. And although you know, I was Prime Minister for six years, you get lots of cases and some survive and some don't. And I still, if you ask me to write the handbook now of exactly when um, resignation is right and when it isn't, it's, it's not that clear cut. Um, often the right thing, um, if you take the Gavin Williamson example, you know, it seems to be every bit of the United Kingdom made the same wrong decision. You is know, it, the is SNP that, government is in Scotland... The English were just doing it on a week-long lag, seeing well, well, what was going wrong in Scotland. But, but still, <laughs> it's interesting, confronted with the question, what do we do about exam results now we've cancelled exams? Um, governments of totally different persuasions, Labour in Wales, DUP in Northern Ireland, SNP in Scotland, Conservative in England, all came to, you know, what turned out to be very much the wrong decision. And so would it have really helped if Gavin Williamson had resigned or was it better for him to try and fix the problem? That was David Cameron then speaking to me about the need uh, for a handbook on uh, when you should uh, sack someone and when you shouldn't. Uh, Lots of prime ministers could have been probably quite keen to have uh, had that uh, handbook. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app, or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. 
Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Anyway, let's get back to the interview. Tomorrow is exactly six years since David Cameron held that other referendum on Scottish independence. How is it that six years after your once-in-a-generation referendum, support for independence is now higher than it's ever been? And it's almost inevitable now, isn't it? Well, I don't think it, it has to be because it was, you know, at the time said by the SNP team that led the independence campaign, this was once in a generation, once in a lifetime, and I think we should hold them to that. Um, so I don't think another referendum is appropriate. That said, I think that um, Conservative politicians like me and indeed Labour politicians who care passionately about keeping the United Kingdom together, I think we've got to put our heads together and think, well, what more can we do to try and demonstrate that this United Kingdom really is a union of four nations and there's real respect for the nationhood of those four nations? How can we make our arrangements work better? Um, Because it would be a tragedy to uh, see this this great uh, union fall apart. Do you think that... uh if there was another referendum, and it looks like the SNP are going to win the Hollywood elections next year, they will clearly ask for one. Can Boris Johnson keep saying no to another referendum? Well, I, I said yes to one because the SNP had a majority in the Scottish Parliament and asked for a once-in-a-generation, once-in-a-lifetime referendum. And I thought the right answer was to say yes um, and then to make sure the referendum was clearly kind of, you know as it were, made in Scotland. It was not... We didn't put our hand on the scales and try and... You know, when they wanted votes for 16-year-olds, they got votes for 16-year-olds. When they wanted a two-year campaign that included the anniversary of Bannockburn, they got the two-year... You know, and I think that was the right answer. But having had that, I think it's perfectly fair for the Westminster Parliament and parties within it and Boris Johnson as Prime Minister to say, look, we had a referendum, we decided that. Now, let's look at ways we can make this United Kingdom work better. Um, just looking on your coffee table, there are many uh, books, uh, actually mostly with photos of yourself on the front, but one of them says David Cameron, Modern Compassionate Conservative. That's a, that feels like a strangely retro view of the Conservative Party. Right? Who, who are the heirs to Cameroonism in the well, Tory look, party? I, look, I think if you, um, if, you, if you ask yourself, you know, does the Conservative Party still care about climate change and the environment, something I put on the agenda? The answer is yes, absolutely. In fact, they've taken the policies I put forward much further. Does the Conservative Party still back uh, equal marriage and is proud of that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, is this Conservative Party more ethnically, di- more ethnically diverse, uh, representing more parts uh, and more communities in Britain? Yes. So I think, um, you know, I was arguing back in 2005, when I became leader of the party, the party had to change and become modern, compassionate, as well as conservative. And I think that's still the case. It goes back a bit to your question about, you know, whether Brexit changes that fundamentally or whether Brexit is just taken by some as a signal that that's in danger. And I'm of the latter view. You mentioned climate change. Um, in your uh, the new forward in your book, you talk about how your daughter Nancy is now an enthusiastic activist. Is she being lobbying you to be more green? I know no, it's, it's no, a long I time mean, ago she since went you put on a one of the, on She went on one of the big marches. I mean, she's at school in, in, in London and went on one of the big marches. And uh, I was applauding her for caring about it and for marching. But sort of my worry is that Extinction Rebellion um, are, are asking the impossible 
And once you start asking the impossible, you know, phase out all cars immediately, go carbon zero in the next couple of years. Once you start asking the impossible, I think there's a danger of losing the middle ground of British politics, who, who know we've got to take action and we've got a good plan and we've cut our carbon emissions and we continue to cut them and we're in line with our, our plans. I think there's a danger if you ask the impossible, you lose the middle ground and, and, and then you won't get it done. And is she sort of lobbying you? Have you got an electric car, given up meat? Uh, we do try and have the odd meat-free day. I'm not great at that, but my my curry cooking skills in lockdown have come along a long way. Um, uh, and um, uh, yes, I need to go further on the cars. There's a debate in my family at the moment about uh, electric hybrids and plug-ins and, ele- and all the rest of it. Um, the range anxiety is a problem on the pure electric cars. They sometimes advertise they can go great distances and you load up the car and put your foot down and you're halfway down the M40 and you're worried that um, you're not going to make it. You're so I think, you know, but I, I'm a big enthusiast for the agenda. I mean, I think what's happening in uh, in the automotive sector is, is fascinating. And in terms of policy responses, does Boris Johnson need to go further, you know, bring forward the ban on petrol cars, uh, s- s- put up fuel duty? Does it? Does I think uh, we've got to we've got to prove that you can have growth and green growth and progress all at the same time. And actually, if you look at um, what's happening in the world in terms of the new technologies, including hydrogen and other things, that are actually going to uh, fundamentally reduce um, carbon emissions, I think we've got to make this a story of opportunity and technology rather than one of punishment um, uh, and the rest of it. And I think that the technology argument is, is really beginning to win, actually. Obviously, its argument has exploded in America again this week. Donald Trump's climate change scepticism, I think, coming to the fore. Uh, who do you think uh, uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden would be the better US president for Britain? Um, I think on all the kind of, uh, as it were, international issues that we are, um, you know, if you want to see global action on climate change, if you want to see action to continue to deal with the scourge of global poverty, uh, um, if you want to see a promotion of uh, trade and ad- anti-protectionism, I mean, it's hard to argue that Donald Trump is is good for those things. Um, but I, I'm not going to get involved in the U.S. election. But I, you know, as I try and say in the book, I'm I profoundly believe that we need that international collaboration to cope with these big problems, whether it's terrorism or climate change or global poverty or whatever. And an America that withdraws from those things makes it far more difficult to achieve any of them. So whoever it is, we need, we need engagement. Not, but I think, with a, to be fair to Trump, on some of these agendas, there's a little kernel of truth in what he's saying. You know, NATO, for instance, it is true that Europe has free-rided on American expenditure for too long, and Trump was right to highlight that. So, you know, I know Trump drives everyone mad, and he certainly drives me mad a lot of the time. You, you've, you've got to deal with the, the causes of... Trump rather than just the consequences. So that was David Cameron answering my question. Well, at least, you know, attempting to look like he might have been answering my questions. But I did ask you to send in your questions. So I made sure I put some of them to him, including, yes, about those diaries. In no particular order, then, Julie says, you once said you wanted to be PM because you thought you'd be good at it. Do you think you were good at it? I don't think I ever actually said that. Oh, that's a shame. In an interview (laughs) with... um, Charles Moore and um, I think he he put it in but I don't think I ever actually said it. No, I wanted to be Prime Minister because I wanted to 
do things for the country. And in the end, were you um, any good at it? Well, it's for others to judge, and that's why I've written a very long book and now done a paperback trying to... I mean, look, it, it's not how I got everything right. It's got lots of mayor culpers and admissions of shortcomings and failings and the rest, but the biggest task we had was to turn around an economy that was deeply in debt with a massive deficit and high unemployment and not enough growth, and at the end of six years, we were the fastest-growing country in the G7. The deficit was right down. We created two million jobs. There were a million more businesses in Britain, and we were attracting investment from all over the world. So the, the major task we had, the economic turnaround we had, um, I, I will um, always believe was successful. It's very impressive. After four years, you've still got that sort of stump speech uh, to had. Uh, Steve says, how upset are you that Boris got a bigger majority than you did? I was delighted um, because, <laughs> no, no, genuinely, look, I, I governed with a coalition. I governed with a small majority. Um, if you're a Conservative, you want your team to win. Um, uh, I obviously like to point out to Boris that, you know, I, I started off as leader. I think we had a 80 seats or something and I got it from 180 to 320 and obviously he's you know added the last nudged it on a bit the la- nudged it on a bit but I'm not sure he totally sees it in that way to be fair to him well, well I'll leave not- you two to fight that out uh, Rodgers <laughs> says what's your favourite beer uh, I'm a big um, fan of Hook Norton um, uh, Old Hookie is the nearest brewery to me in the country uh, the weird thing was about lockdown actually was I was really looking forward to getting to the pub for that first pint when it was, you know, when you were allowed to. And I felt like a bit like an American tourist because you've had your first pint in the pub and it was a bit warm because you're so used to drinking cold beer in lockdown out of the fridge that the real stuff, you know, so that was an interesting... Anyway, that was not that interesting. Anyway, (laughs) there we are. Uh, Draft Guinness in cans is quite good too. That was a good invention. Uh, Very good. Um, Kate says, how much does one of your after-dinner speeches cost? I don't know if there's others who's interested in booking you. Uh, or... Well, I'm sure she can go to my <laughs> speaker agency. I do a lot of, I mean, I do do some paid uh, speaking, but I do a lot of speaking for Alzheimer's, and a lot of money I've raised has gone to that cause. I think Alzheimer's Research UK has been, I think, the fastest-growing research charity in the UK, and I've done a lot of fundraising with them and will continue to do so. Uh, Alexander says, given you had plenty of time on your hands... Why didn't you roll up your sleeves and build your own shed instead of spending £25,000 on one? Well, I did build a chicken shed in lockdown, um, and I think the chickens will back me up that it's not as good as one built by an expert. Very good, Uh, very good. Um, On a sort of partly similar theme about where you reside, Ryan says, personal question, how is family life out of the political goldfish bowl? It's it's good because, um, you know, I've got two teenage children and a 10-year-old, and... Um, as I say, I wasn't much good at the homeschooling, but you know, I've definitely got better at the cooking and the cleaning and the sorting out stuff and all those family logistics. You know, because having a you've become more family, you're just more domesticated yeah. at trying to. So you know, breakfast in the Cameron household is is a lot more well when I'm involved, more professional than it used to be when I was involved, if I can put it that way. Obviously, we've learned quite a bit about your domestic arrangements in the last few days. Um, uh, Mike in Cornwall says is and we had quite a lot on this subject i have to say it's probably the the single uh, most uh, asked question uh, is sasha swire still on your christmas card list um i think i stopped sending christmas cards actually but I, maybe i'll start again this year <laughs> just to not look, send her one um, <laughs> um no look of course it's kind of um it's embarrassing when you have things you say in private um and do in private sort of 
splashed all over the place. And of course, you'd rather that didn't happen. But I mean, I suppose the truth is that if you want, you know, respect for your privacy and people not questioning your character and private life and all the rest of it, then politics probably isn't the career for you. So I think you've got to take the rough with the smooth. Did you actually say what she says you said about her perfume and taking her into the bushes? I don't recall um, that conversation. But look, if someone wrote down all the um, all, all your banter in private over the years, you probably might be a few bits and pieces. Yeah, my, you yeah, yeah. Luckily, uh, right. luckily, I'm never going to be prime minister. So it's not going to be an issue. Final question, because this is something we, we did on the show the other day, and it acted ended it spectacularly with Jeremy Corbyn winning. But um, who do you think is the best prime minister we never had? It's a difficult one. That I think I would go um, actually with William Hague because of of our generation, he was the most brilliant um, speaker, leader, thinker, is still all those things, and very inspiring. And maybe he was unlucky that he became Tory leader very young and against an opponent, Tony Blair, who at that stage seemed unbeatable. Um, but I was so lucky to get him back into frontline politics and being my foreign secretary. And uh, he was a wonderful colleague, a great guide and mentor, and a thoroughly nice man. Well, Sasha Swire, we're absolutely furious that you didn't suggest that Hugo Swire is the best Prime Minister we've never had. But anyway, David Cameron, thanks so much for joining us on Times Radio. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's stick then with the David Cameron interview briefly. And, and you know, because some of you said, what are we talking to that man for? I mean, over, overlooking the fact that he was Prime Minister for six years. But somebody who's been tracking his career for a lot longer than that is Francis Elliott, political editor of The Times. And I think the first biographer of David Cameron, is that right? Morning, Francis. Yeah, the first. Original, some would say the best, but you know, I, I of course would say the best. You had all the good stuff, you had all the drug taking and almost being expelled from Eton, uh, and the picture of the Billington Club. And, and, and yeah, I mean, we, we, uh, James Hanning, as the co-host, and I did our best to introduce uh, David Cameron and his project, uh, as it was back in the day in 2006, seems a long time ago, but yeah. And then when it was updated, and you introduced the word chillaxing, didn't you, to the yes, lexicon? Well, I, I will. <laughs> Yes, well, the one absolute gift of, of uh, Sasha Swire's um, uh, picnic of delight uh, is, is that uh, uh, is to confirm in spades just how much Dave likes to chillax and how he chillaxes and how often it involves <laughs> exotic and quite hard alcohol. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah, there you are. Yeah. My man, whatever else you can say about him... Um, knows how to mix a drink. <laughs> so um, what what do you think, I mean, you know, I'm not asking you to mark my homework, but what do you think we learned about uh, David Cameron? Because he he's an old pro at this. He knows how to step around even the best planned questions. But the, yes. there was lots no, of implied thought, criticism of Boris Johnson. Yes, there was a lot of implied criticism. I mean, obviously, you, you, and I think what he was trying to do was to remind and represent... Uh, a strain of conservatism which has been, you know, frankly, lost. I mean, he he, he said, he, you know, he, he tried to claim that there was a continuity of modern compassionate conservatism in terms of, you know, it's um, what, why the diversity of, of, of MPs. But, you know, he, it was what he didn't say. So what happened to the rehabilitation agenda? You don't hear any of that. Um, you know, it's uh, it's all kind of lock them up, throw away the key stuff now. Um uh, so, you know, and, and also the kind of stuff about him volunteering in a food bank, you know, you might sneer, but it, it speaks to the sort of big society 
um, communitarian bit of that period of conservatism, which was electorally successful, actually, in its own right. I mean, you know, they, you know, what the story of the Conservative Party is it, it swung centre to hoover up a load of um, Lib Dems, and then it's tacked kind of social right uh, with Brexit to, to, to eat some, you know, to compensate for the loss of those Lib Dems who deserve to get over Brexit and, and, uh, and, and, and eat it for the Labour heartless vote. So he was, you know, he was doing his best, about the year. He was doing his best to, to remind people that that, that strand of conservatism exists, that he led it, that he wants, you know, he wants to see it come back. That was part of the bring back Jeremy Hunt agenda. You know, he's criticism of Dominic Cummings, absolutely, you know, front and centre, no end of trouble, you know, is a, is an appeal essentially to Johnson to come back to a real fire, you know, um, possibly a, a glass of decent red, uh, too, <laughs> I would have thought maybe that's what he's texting. Um, I mean, I have to say it's a little bit forlorn, um, given that they have made their electoral bed and they're really going to have to rely on it now. Well, yeah, because I suppose that the, the yeah they are they are sort of in on a trajectory now, and he talks about how Brexit, and again, he's all sort of implied criticism. The risk of Brexit is at the moment it gives the impression the Tories have moved away from that sort of socially progressive uh, position. But then when you look at the, you know, could you imagine David Cameron's Tory party stoking around for a week about the merits of singing "Land of Hope and Glory" or shooting, no. you know, and all that? And that's that that is the difference, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know. He uh, he was quite fastidious about avoiding. I mean, he did the old cultural war stuff, but but not 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 to the extent that it's being played out now. And just thought, into... also, his his kind of criticism of Trump was he says I want to stay out of the U.S. election uh, after very much wading into the U.S. election, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which was very very Cameron. Yeah. Um, and, and just to because I asked him the question, who is the sort of the flag bearer for Cameroonism? And he just completely avoided it uh, altogether. Yes. Is is there still that strand? I'm just looking up on yes. the TVs now. Matt Hancock's in the House of Commons. He's is he the closest sort of Cameroonism still in the oh. Commons? Oh, it's tricky. I mean, I think you know, I think a lot of them would would gratefully rush back to that to that ground if they had the opportunity. There, there is nobody. Let's think. I mean it. Yeah, I mean there are there are some who have picked up the agenda and interpreted it in their own way. Uh, Neil O'Brien uh, um, on the back benches, you know, Hancock to some degree. Um, you know, there's bits of Ben Wallace you you wouldn't think it, but you know, have a um, have a sort of Cameroonian bent to them. Uh, so so it's you know it's it's there, it's in the locker. It may yet come back. Um, it feels out of time right now, as as does he, frankly. Yeah, it may well, but then, like you said, the pendulum, pendulum might swing back. Francis Elliott, though, the Times political editor, but also biographer of uh, David Cameron, uh, and well worth um, reading that, that. Forget the pig one. Uh, the, book, the book you want to read is the, is the Francis Elliott James Hanning biography of uh, David Cameron, which as you were saying, revealed all the stuff about um, you know smoking cannabis at school, nearly getting um, expelled from Eton, and uh, the famous Bullingdon Club photo, and introduced chillaxing uh, to the political uh, lexicon. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box too. Make sure you subscribe and review 
at the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.